This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, welcome everyone. Thank you all for joining us uh, tonight. Tonight we are learning Le'idu Nishmat Rabbi Avram ben Chaim Yehuda and Rabbi Chaskal ben Rabbi Avram, as well as Le'ila Nishmas Moshe Yehuda ben Ben Yaakov Akayin. My Chavrusa that was Nifter. Uh, this is his thirteenth yard site. It was yesterday, uh, so we're learning Le'ila Nishmasa as uh, as well. Okay, <coughs> so. But let's just jump uh, right into it. A lot, a lot to get through tonight. Uh, amazing, amazing things. And uh, you'll have to bear with me a little. Not too much, but but a, a little bit of, of holding along. So the first thing I want to I touch upon is that uh, Hanukkah is very interesting because Hanukkah is one of the most celebrated Jewish holidays. I'm not talking about the from the Orthodox side because from the Orthodox side, you know, celebrate all the holidays, but I'm talking about from the secular side. From the secular side, Hanukkah is a very, very celebrated, uh, you know, holiday. And it's interesting because when you start looking into the reasons of why it is celebrated, it's kind of contradicting to the people that are celebrating it because the miracle of Hanukkah is the story about how the Greeks, the Yavanim, they wanted to destroy not the Jewish people physically, but spiritually. They wanted to destroy the Chachmas Torah. They wanted to destroy the Torah wisdom. They wanted to establish secular knowledge. So it wasn't about killing the Jews. It was about getting the Jews to leave Torah and become secular. And the outcome of the story is the Jews won. They stayed strong in their religious uh, in their religious belief, and they overcame all the the the. Uh, obstacles that came along with that. So when you think about it, the secular people, the ones that are not listening to the Torah, are the ones that are celebrating the holiday about listening to the Torah, which is <laughs> something that's very interesting, which begs us to, to start questioning, there must be something over here that we're missing over here. There must be something special about Hanukkah. It is true that you can say that Hanukkah coincides with other secular holidays, so Jews want to be involved, and that's why they, they this picked up, and it's possible that that's, that's a strong part in it as well, but we want to go and focus and tap into the inherent power of Hanukkah, which most of us, I would say, secular, not secular, anything in between, orthodox, has has very, very little understanding with it. So, to start, we are going to start with the topic of the blame game. Now, the blame game, the idea behind the blame game is as follows, that when some when something goes wrong, we tend to feel threatened. So we want to defend ourselves, and you can either do that through scapegoating or shifting the blame elsewhere. Of course, this approach does not solve a thing. It's not a beneficial, it's not a helpful, but it helps the person that's going through it. It kind of uh, gives them a little bit of an excuse to a certain degree for whatever it is that they're do- whatever it is that they're doing wrong. Now, what's the the blame game? That is, instead of me being at fault for something that I did wrong or I'm involved with doing wrong, I blame it on this person. I blame it on my parents. I blame it on my teachers. I blame it on my boss and my friends, on the bully from high school, on my neighbor, and anybody and everyone in between. Sometimes it's my spouse. Sometimes it's my children. Sometimes it's everybody else but me. This takes away the accountability. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes they are to blame the other, the you know, the other side. Let's call it. But most of the time. Or at least a a nice big chunk of the time, it's a complete fabrication. And the one thing that is certain is that everyone, at one point or another, played the blame game. They played the game where they pass over the blame, and it's not their fault. This could either be on a personal, a micro level, or it could either also be on a macro, a political, a political level. And this is where I want to go and speak a little bit about card events to see how this plays in the macro and the political level, and uh, the um, how you see it from the news angle, from the presidential, from 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 how the government is handling it, and it gives us a little bit of understanding of what's the background to it, and then we'll explain how to overcome it. So when you look at the Israel-Gaza war, there is a, a lot of misrepresentation of the facts. Uh, this is a majority to the shifting of the blame from Israel or from Hamas rather to Israel. And the idea behind it is, is quite a simple one, that if we can make, if we can put the blame on somebody else's side, then if it's the blame is on the other side, then you know what? It's not so bad because it's not it's not my fault. If it's not my fault, 
then, you know, like, okay, fine. I, I, I don't have to, you know, I, I don't have to take so much into consideration of it. So the idea when one goes and, and, and says that the other side is the blame, then the person who is, I'm using air quotes, is the victim who's not their fault. Whatever they're doing is really not so bad. And this is what's going on. There's a shifting of the blame that's been going on since the beginning of this war where Israel is the one that the, the world, or I shouldn't say the world because it's not really the whole world, but there's, there's a nice chunk of it. They're making a lot of noise where they're putting the blame on Israel as opposed to Hamas. As opposed to the Palestinians, it started off by using specific language like militant as opposed to terrorists or occupiers as opposed to Israel. Things, the little subtle languages that puts the blame where it ought not to be. And the idea behind it again is very simple: is that you make the bad guy. Whoever you make the bad guy, then the other person is not really so bad. And they do this from all angles. I'm going to try to cover all the angles. So uh, they, they start off with the the Palestinians are not doing well off financially. Israel is well off financially. Palestinians live in poverty. So what do the Palestinian leaders tell them? Says, well, oh, you know who needs to blame for this? Israel needs to blame for this. Israel is the one that, that needs to blame with this. The world, uh, unfortunately, the left liberal world, when they see someone successful, they see someone in a hierarchy that, oh, they must be wrong because they're successful. We have to go for the underdog. We have to go to the people that are oppressed or as a peer oppressed or don't have as much. And this is like a mentality that you automatically go to, to a, a certain mindset. So the Palestinians are not successful. The Israel is successful. Must be Israel is wrong and Palestinian is right. Oh, but if you just look a little bit into it, you can realize and you can see why do the Palestinians not have any money? Why do the Palestinians live in poverty? It's very simple and it's proven time and time again because the Palestinian leaders, there's tons of money going into the West Bank and going into the Gaza Strip, billions and billions of dollars. But what do the people do with it? The, the Palestinian leaders, they take it and they use it for terrorism or they take it and they pay terrorists off to, uh, um, I don't know, to, for, to the, 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 killing, uh, uh, the killing fee where the more you kill Jews, the more more money you're going to get from the government, which, by the way, is sponsored in some, to some extent by the American government. So what happens is America gives money to the Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority goes and gives it to the terrorists. And then the cycle continues. And then the people are wondering, why is it not? Why do we not have a successful economy over here? Because the only focus that they're doing with everything that they're getting is that they're using it for weapons. We're using it for destruction for the other side. While Israel uses the money for growth, for economic growth, besides the fact that a lot of the Palestinian leaders, they pocket their own money to, as well. It's a very corrupt uh, um, uh, environment. But nonetheless, they take all, everything. They even take the infrastructure. We know that Hamas has been taking the, the pipes that were used for waters. They were using it for for uh, for missiles. This is why in Gaza there's no water, because not because they didn't have the infrastructure. It was there. They just took it out and used it for uh, for terrorist activities. So... <laughs> they, the, the world is trying to, is kind of putting the blame on, oh, it must be the blame is on, is on Israel. And you see this in, in like news reports where, uh, with the hostage exchange, I, <laughs> for a second I was shocked and I was like, okay, what do you expect from the dumb liberal world? I, I don't know how much you could expect from them, but. A Sky News reporter was speaking to a government spokesperson by the name of Elon Levy. And the way that it was for the hostage exchange, which I'm sure you guys are all aware of, is that there was a a three-to-one exchange, a ratio exchange, meaning that for every one Jew that the Hamas releases from their hostage, that they kidnap from their homes, Israel will release three convicted felons that are sitting in prison um, uh, for a crime that they did. So the ratio is three Palestinians for one Israel, one for one Israeli. So you know how the world, how dumb the world is that they 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 spun it around is that they were like, oh wait a minute, why is it that Israel is giving three Palestinians for only one Israeli? Must be that they value Israelis more than the Palestinian. And the spokesperson, you know, Elon Levy, he was like, you could see his eyes like widen. He's like, are you kidding me? Are you really asking me that question? Of course, we would not want to give three prisoners. This is not terrorists. These, I'm sorry, these are not hostages. These are terrorists that are sitting in prison. We don't want to give them out. These are dangerous people. We're only doing it because we don't have any other choice. This is uh, this is the only way that we would be able to make this negotiation. So they had to give it a three to one ratio, not because they want to do, not because they value the Palestinians' life less. But rather because they care more, they, Israel cares more about their citizens than the Palestinians care about their own citizens. That's as simple as that. 
But you see how the, the news is switching it off. Why? Because even if Israel is doing something good, and even if Israel is doing something far better and far more than everybody else, they're going to switch it around and somehow turn it, uh, turn it on you. Uh, the New York Times <coughs> gave uh, put on the article, one of the, the headlines of the article with the hostage release was two dozen hostages were freed. And this is, by the way, regards to the Palestinians. You know what they call the Palestinians? The, the, the prisoners, the, the felons, the, the ones that are convicted of crimes. They call them hostages. It's almost as if, oh, Israel is releasing hostages and Palestinians are releasing hostages. The way that they compare, it's unbelievable because one of them, were kidnapped from their home. Another one was convicted. It's like if somebody would go and be released from prison, the headlines would say, oh, hostage is released from American prison. If someone is convicted in, in prison and sitting, sitting, uh, you know, sitting at their sentence, they're not a hostage. They're a convicted felon. And they're, when they're released, they finish their term that they need to be released. But the terminology that it gets used is trying to shift the blame or at least equate the blame to a certain, uh, um, to a certain, to a certain level. It's, you know, when when you compare a two-year-old hostage to a 17-year-old, you know, young man who tried to kill Jews, it, it's, it's barbaric, it's disgusting, and it's definitely not helping the situation. But in their mindset, they're trying to equate, they're playing the blame game. They're trying to put the blame on Israel. They're trying to take the blame off Hamas for reasons that is very, very hard to understand because it doesn't make any sense why somebody would want to side with somebody who is a murderer, with an organization that all they care about is murdering and genocide of an entire, of entire, uh, uh, of entire, you know, the Jewish race. So when, just to tell you this, you know, go on a little bit more, and I don't want to get too too much off topic on this. The there was an an Irish citizen by the name of Emily Hand, a nine year old girl. Well, she was eight; she turned nine in uh, captivity. When she was released, she was one of the hostages released. The Prime Minister of Ireland. Now, this is not a news organization. This is a Prime Minister of Ireland, and I'm quoting. This is what they said: "An innocent child who was lost has now have been found and returned." And there was a lot of kickback from this. It went lost. This child was kidnapped from their home. It's a child. They weren't lost. They were kidnapped. But why would they, why would the prime minister of Ireland write lost and then found, which is a complete lie, which has nothing to do with the truth, the furthest from the truth, because it's shifting the blame. If the, the, if the prime minister would say, oh, there was a child that was kidnapped and now they were returned. It looks very bad for the kidnapper. Oh, you're a kidnapper. Kid- no, there's no one that looks good as a kidnapper. So what they did was is that they made it look like it's like oh it was a lost child and then it was uh, it was found and now Hamas is, is is playing this game as well and you can see that when they release the hostages they're telling the hostages smile and wave you know later we found out that they were drugged and they were forced to wave they were forced to smile because the Hamas there was video recordings the Hamas said if you don't wave if you don't smile I'm going to kill you um, so there was an incentive for them to do that but Hamas is trying to play the game oh no, no we're so you know we're we're good people you know like we don't care we like we would never hurt a child, right? Well, of course, it would never hold a child. When you find out how they were held in, in in captivity with only two hours, they were sitting in tunnels. They only had two hours of the lights being turned on. They had a minimal food to eat. That right now, when they're recuperating, they can't even have full meals. They have to like slowly because their stomachs have have uh, you know have have shrunk. They, they you know sometimes have to wait two hours to go to the bathroom. The list goes on and on. They were held in the worst such scenarios, but yet the world is trying to present that oh like look it's 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 okay. It's almost like an equal playing field. The ABC News when um, when the, when the ceasefire agreement came it came to being, but it didn't start yet. Israel and Hamas were still were still fighting because it didn't start yet. So the ABC News headline before the ceasefire wrote, "Despite and I'm, let me quote this: Despite reaching an agreement with Hamas on temporary ceasefire in exchange for the release of hostages, the Israeli military continues to bombard the Gaza Strip." You see how they switch it around? They switch it around to say, "Oh, look, it, the Israel is it, the the ceasefire never started yet. The war is still on. There's no ceasefire. Why would Israel stop? Hamas didn't stop." And it, it by the way, it continues one after another. New York Times as when the when the um, 
when the ceasefire expired, Hamas started off by sending sending a rocket into Israel. Israel didn't start initiate the the end of the ceasefire. Hamas did, and then Israel retaliated. Oh, guess what? New York Times puts it out. Oh, that the Israel military announced it's resuming its fighting. Right, because it's all on Israel. The same the same story going on and on and again and again. You see it from all different angles. They're all putting the blame where they feel they want the blame to be, not honestly, not truthfully, but where they wanted the blame to be. And if they want to have, they want to side against Israel. So the blame goes on Israel. And the problem gets even further where you have people that they're like, oh, but all the innocent Palestinians, all the innocent Palestinians, there's so many innocent Palestinians, they're good people. And I'll say right at the front, I'm sure there are some good Palestinians, but let us not forget that the Palestinian elected Hamas. Not only that, in the attack on October 7th, there was three waves. The first one was by the, by the, by the Hamas commanders. The second were by the simple soldiers and the third were by the civilians. They're the ones who could, who did very, very barbar. These are civil, Palestinian civilians that, that participated in this. And if you think, okay, that's only a small fra- faction of, of the whole Palestinian population. Well, hold on a second. There was a poll done. I believe it was the only poll that was done. It was done in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. 75% of the population approved of what Hamas did to Israel. The murder and the blank, 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 other things that they did to, to Israel. Hamas, uh, the Palestinians approve it. So let me ask you again, where, where is the good Palestinians? And again, I'm sure there are, there are, there are some there. There are 11, there are 13% of the Palestinians that opposed uh, this, this whole thing. So there are, there is some good, you know, there. But the bulk majority, when you say, oh, there's so many innocent, majority of them are innocent, there's two-state solution, all this is not, you're not looking at the facts. To tell you even furthermore about the innocent, and this is something when I read, I usually don't have to do a double take because at this point, unfortunately, I, I don't get surprised anymore for what's going on. But Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad had to protect 12 hostages from who? From the civilians who wanted to kill the hostages. Like that, I had to like, I'm like, wait a minute. Like, did I read that correctly? I'm like, yeah, th- that's how, uh, that's how bad it is over there. Okay, granted things are changing and you have, you have the, you know, a lot of Palestinians, they don't want the, the Hamas anymore. But regardless, you cannot say that they're all innocent. You cannot say that they're all innocent. Even there was a one hostage that ran away, a Russian, a Russian uh, citizen that ran away and he was four days. He was, he, he was trying to get back to Israel. He didn't, obviously he didn't recognize the area, but what, how did he ended up getting back? He ended up getting back. He ended up getting back, not to Israel, meaning to the, to Hamas captivity because civilians found him and they brought him back to, uh, back to Hamas. The, 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 Way that the world is going to look at it, and the way the world is 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 representing this is only you could only point to it. They they're trying to shift the blame. It's not honest reporting. It's this is not truthful. They're trying to shift the blame, and you have this this uh, I believe came out was it today that um, Harvard and MIT and Penn State they were all asked the following question under oath in a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism, and I'm going to quote for you the question. And the question is, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your university's code of conduct and rules regarding bullying or harassment? Right? So basically, is it bad to call the genocide of Jews? And the representative, uh, Elisa Stefanik, was so shocked by the responses that she had to ask the question like multiple times because the responses that they that they got under oath from the president of Harvard of MIT of Penn was well it depends on the context it's whether the speech turns into conduct which is the dumbest thing i've ever heard whether this so it's only considered bad if they actually commit genocide like that's literally question 1 is it bad to kill an entire race and they were like hmm well it depends on the context of it. It does, it really doesn't depend on the context of it. If, if the question would be asked, if all, if somebody would start screaming for the genocide of all Chinese, of all Mexican, of all black people, would you say, well, it depends on the context? Are you kidding me? They would be suspended, expelled, and they would have their name blotted out for like, they would, who knows what they would have. So it only, oh, if it's a Jew, okay, then it depends on the, if all the Jews must die, well, then it depends. But if you say all the Mexicans, all the Chinese, all the black, oh no, that's a problem. See, the, the issue is the double standards that everyone has. And why is it that people are having double standards? Because they're trying to place the blame where they feel that they want the blame to be placed. 
And this is consistent throughout all the left mindset. It's consistent throughout the majority of, 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 Unfortunately, the left, the left, uh, population. And I'm gonna explain it a little bit more. We're gonna get a little bit more detail, and then we're gonna get into Hanukkah and how we get to get to overcome it. Obama, his response, which we didn't get to, uh, speak about, was, uh, a disgusting response, which, uh, you know, is not a legitimate response at all, because his response can, is not that it's wrong, but it's, Completely inappropriate. In his response, we will have to look at the broader picture, right? So this is his response after the October 7th massacre. He said, oh, we have to look at the bigger picture. Why do we have to? We have to take in the whole truth. And he said, this is his quote, everyone is complicit to some degree, meaning that no one is innocent. Both sides have contributed to the crisis. Let's try to understand this. There is a terrorist attack, the worst terrorist attack that the Jews had since, since the Holocaust in one day, this October 7th. Former President Barack Hussein Obama, underscore Hussein, comes out and says, oh, well, no one's innocent. No. Uh, yeah, people are innocent. The people that were murdered in their home, they're innocent, right? The people that were said, like, the, there are plenty of innocent people over here. Why is Obama all of a sudden saying, well, no, we have to look to both sides. First of all, what he's saying is not factually wrong because any conflict, any conflict, you could say you have to look at both sides. I, I mean, did they say that by George Floyd? No. Did they say that by 9-11? No. Why? Because it's inappropriate. But for some reason, when it comes to Jews, that's when it's appropriate to, to say that. The, the, the idea is, is that he was trying to shift the blame. He's shifting the blame for Hamas to both sides. So when Hamas fires a missile, it's war. When Israel fights back, that's a war crime. The double standard continues. The while we're speaking about Obama, might as well speak about Osama. So there was, now it went down. They shut it down actually pretty quick. But a few weeks ago, this they, they came out, uh, um, there was a wave on one of the social medias. I think maybe it was TikTok. I don't remember which one. One of the social medias where they, um, where, where American, ignorant American, dumb American, uh, I don't know if you want to call them kids, young adults, were, they, 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 we're reading Osama bin Laden's, Osama bin Laden's letter, uh, to America. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. You know, at one point I thought we don't have the time to write, but the, the, the Osama bin Laden wrote a letter to America regarding what, why he did why he did, uh, regarding the 9-11 attacks where it killed 3,000, over 3,000 Americans and many, many of, of the, the, you know, firefighters, the police force, the, you know, ambulance volunteers and the people that read it, there were, they videoed themselves. For some reason, they were not embarrassed to say this. They videoed themselves and they were like, Oh wow, maybe Osama was actually right. I'm having a crisis. Osama bin Laden was probably right. Like, you're American. You're sitting, you're living in a country that people before you, you're, you're not that long ago died so that you could sit here and be here safely. You're like, uh, the, the, the lack of a Karsatova is a lack of gratitude, but he, like, how are they not embarrassed to say like, oh yeah, Osama bin Laden was, was maybe he was right. Maybe he was right. So let me just give you some point. What was the whole letter that I'm not going to go through the, all the details, but I'm going to go through it very briefly. Osama bin Laden explains why we're fighting against America because you attacked us. What do you mean that America attacked, you know, the, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden? He's referring to Palestine, Israel. He says why? Because you help and support the Jewish people. You help and you created the, the state of Israel and that is one of the greatest crimes and the, cre- the creation of Israel, he says, is a crime which must be erased. And then he goes on in the letter saying that the people of Palestine are pure Arabs. It's the Muslims that are inheritors of Moshe Rabbeinu, which is, you know what he said? He said that the, the Muslims are the one, the real, inher- the real Torah inheritors. I, I don't know how dumb people can be because like, if you just look at the day, Israel, the, the, the Judaism started about two, almost 2000 years before Islam even came into being. Like, is, so where is it like that all of a sudden Muhammad came around and then switched everything around? Like, based off what? There was no, there is no factual evidence even from their side to prove it. Even from their side. So, but he goes on and on spewing a few other lies that of course these teenagers or whatever, these young adults that are reading it have no idea. Cause, you know, you, you look at it and, and like he's saying that the real, the real, 
the real owners of the land are, is the Arab population. The majority of the Arabs that lived in Israel before Israel became a state in 1948 were not indigenous to the land. They came from outside because Israel poured, Jewish people put a lot of money into Israel. And they, there was a lot of economic opportunity. So the Arabs from nearby countries, they said, okay, there's an economic opportunity. Let me go in over here. And this, it was, you know, this started happening, you know, about 200 years ago. So they started coming in. They start coming in from all different angles for, to, for economic opportunity. They weren't they weren't indigenous to the land. I'm sure there were there were there were Jews and and Arabs that were indigenous to the land over there, but it wasn't the majority of the population. So, the idea behind this letter, the idea behind this letter is there's many ideas behind this letter, but the point that I want to to bring down is where you have the the foundation of this letter is that Israel is wrong. Like, Osama bin Laden attacked America because of Israel, because of what's going on in Israel. So people that are agreeing with this letter, what they're really saying is that Israel has no right to be exist. Israel has, should be destroyed. This is their mindset. They're like, oh, so what, what's happening? This letter just didn't happen to miraculously just, you know, you know, you know, come out into being just now. It's been around for a long time. But people are trying to shift the blame. And people are trying to say, oh, you know what? Osama bin Laden, he wasn't wrong. He was right for what he did. For Again, how can you be normal and say that? I don't know. But people are saying that the same way that they're saying that Israel is wrong for what they did and Hamas is right for what they did. Again, these are people that need to be checked into mental institutions. It's as simple as that. Or they just don't know the facts. It's either one or the other. Well, there's actually a third thing that they are anti-Semitic. I guess there's three options. So why is it that people in, in this generation are, can, can say that someone like Osama bin Laden, a terrorist who killed many, many, many thousands of innocent people, is right? And the answer is, well, one of the answers is that we live in a generation that is never at fault. We live in a generation that it has, has, there's no punishment for, you know, for the generation. You know, like there are people that do not work a full-time job. Because they're lazy. It's as simple as that. In 1958, the percentage of men that were working was 98%. In 2022, it was 89%. That was in the workforce. That's not even including the 7 million people that are not working and they're not on unemployment. They just don't want to work. They just don't want to work. They're not even on unemployment. Why? Because this is we're in a generation that we're just lazy. We're producing such a weak generation. It's so sad. It's really so sad. You know, I, I one of the things that actually did shock me was uh, one person was um, was late. Why were they late? Their response was they were late because of time. That's why they were late, and they cannot be held responsible. It's not my fault. It's time that made me late. <laughs> you know, like I can't be held responsible for that. And for a second, it's shocking. But then you remember, like, wait a minute, this person could be a man one day and a woman another day, and then they could switch whenever they want. So, like, why can't they just decide and check off the boxes? No, I, huh, I don't subscribe to time. This thing nine to five. No, I come when I want and I leave when I want. We're literally producing the weakest generation, a generation that can never be at fault. This is a generation that plays the blame game consistently. You know why I can't succeed? It's because of my teachers. It's because of my system. It's because of the government, it's because of this, it's because of the taxes. They don't stop passing the blame to somebody else because they can't take the blame to themselves. And unfortunately, this is not only for the secular, liberal world, it goes into the the religious world as well. There are many people that unfortunately claim, and they're wrongly taught, this is not factually correct, that people lost their emuna, they left religion because of the Holocaust. And the answer is it's not. It's not historically correct. The masses did not lose their faith during the Holocaust. If you look at historically before the Holocaust, there was a lot of Jews that were not following the Torah and the mitzvahs. They were not following the things that they were supposed to do, and they continued to not follow them afterwards. Oh, but they said, okay, you know why? I don't do this now because of what happened in the Holocaust. They weren't doing it beforehand. The majority of them were not doing it beforehand. And the the sad thing is, is now now you have people and nowadays that they're claiming they're not religious because of the Holocaust. You have no connection to the Holocaust. Maybe your grandfather died so that you could be a Jew and now you're throwing it off. But other than that, you have no connection. So you're, you're like not, no, of course you're not being secular now because of the Holocaust. Rather, you're using it as an excuse. You're playing the blame game. The blame game goes in all angles, from the micro level to a personal level to a macro level to the, to the entire, uh, you know, like, uh, country outlook, who's, uh, countries that are at war. We see this with Asaph. Asaph, 
was somebody who also played the blame game. Esav was angry when Yitzchak gave the brachas, the blessing to Yaakov. And the Torah describes how Esav was going on a war path. He was go- he wanted to kill Yaakov. He wanted to kill Yaakov. The only reason why he didn't kill Yaakov is because he he realized that it's going to uh, it's going to hurt. It's going to give anguish to his parents, and he didn't want to give anguish to his parents. But his rationalization was that he was at no fault whatsoever. Like, what? I ha- it's Yaakov's fault. He took the blessings from me. But wait a minute, didn't you sell it? Then you, there's a contract. You wrote down, you signed the contract that you're selling it. It's not, does not no longer belong to you. But yet he would not take responsibility. He passed the blame. You know who he ended up blaming afterwards? He ended up blaming his wives. He had wives that were worshiping Avodazara. They were idol worshiping. He had idol worshiping wives. And he said, this is why I didn't get the blessing because of my wife. So what did he do? He went and he married a daughter of Yishmal, uh, Basmas. He ended up marrying a daughter of Yishmal because he thought this would be able to, to fix it. But what he was, he was doing the same thing that that many people do, many wicked people do nowadays, and many, you know, non-wicked people do nowadays, and that is they play the blame game. It's not my fault I'm like this, it's the other person's fault. It's somebody else's fault. People in this generation, especially this generation, we fail to take accountability for our actions. There was, um, in the 18th century, there was uh, something called the Black Death of Childbed. This was where women were giving birth and they were dying within like 48 hours after childbirth. And it got worse and worse. At, in some places, it was over 70% of births, these women were dying. And this was the you know the 18th century. This was the time when science was coming around. This was the time when, when people were looking into like the scientific world and people were trying to study what was going on. So these doctors were doing autopsies on these women in the morning and then going and delivering the babies in the, in the afternoon. And one, one time, the, you know, the, one of the doctors over there was doing research and he was saying, he says, you want to know what's going on over here? He's like, you guys are doing autopsies. You're touching corpse, corpses in the morning and you're not washing your hands and then you're going to deliver babies. You're transferring the diseases. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. For years, they laughed at him until, I don't know, maybe it was like 30 years later or something. They, they started washing their hands and guess what? Like the death stopped. The black death of child that just stopped. Cause, what we often do is we often try to point the finger and say it's somebody else's fault. It's not my fault. We don't tend to look at ourselves. It must be somebody else's fault that I failed. It must be somebody else's fault that I'm not successful. It must be somebody else's fault that my marriage is not working well. It must be somebody else's fault that X, Y, and Z is happening. We tend to forget to look into ourselves and to look into the mirror. The doctors, it was all their fault. Had they started washing their hands, this would not have spread. The diseases would not have spread. But the problem is that it can be our fault. We're the doctors. We're the ones that are doing good. It must be somebody else's fault. And this is the continuation of the blame game. We don't look at ourselves and we look at other people. So now let's take a look into Hanukkah. And let's take a look into how this can help us in so many ways. I want to share with you something from Moshe Wolfson. That he quotes down the Ma'ar Enayim. The Ma'ar Enayim quotes a Gemara in uh, Gemara and Shabbos, page 28a, that rules that if you have inferior wicks and oils, then those you could use for Hanukkah, but you cannot use for Shabbos. Yeah, it has to be during the weekday of Hanukkah, but whatever, we're not going to get into all that details. The, the point is, is that you could use inferior wicks and oils for Hanukkah that you cannot use on Shabbos. And explains the Ma'ar Enayim, that this is the same is true with Hashem's candles, meaning the nishamas, the souls. The, <coughs> there are souls that don't get lit up by Shabbos. They don't connect to Shabbos. They, but those souls that don't connect, they can connect to the Hanukkah candles. They can connect to 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 where where Shabbos couldn't do it. Hanukkah can do it. The um, the passing embraces tells us that Hashem saw that the light that He created was good. Now. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world and he created the light, the light, this is not referring to the regular light that we're referring to. It's something called the Arhagunas. There was a special light, a light that was would be too good for the wicked and they would misuse it. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God went and he concealed the light. He went and he concealed the Arhagunas. And this organist could either only be used for tzaddikim. And besides, you know, when Mashiach comes, there's a lot of different aspects of this. We gave a whole class on this. Well, I think one of my first classes on Hanukkah that I gave on Torah anytime is about the Arha Ganas. But in regards to what we're speaking tonight, the Rokeach, the Maral, says that the Neris of Hanukkah, ha- that's where the Arha Ganas appears again, in the Neris, in the candles of Hanukkah. This light 
the light of Ar Haganas is also not only regarding to Hanukkah, but it's also something that is it refers to the light of Mashiach. Now, we like we said that when Mashiach comes, Hashem will return this light to the world again. Every Jew, every Yid has a Ar Haganas, has a hidden light inside his soul, inside his neshama. The <coughs> the desire of every soul to get close to God is inside. Even the Jews that are very, very far away from Torah and mitzvahs, they don't keep anything, there is a special light that can never be extinguished. And that's inside their 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 soul. The Pasuk in Tehillim tells us, uh, in Tehillim chapter 121, uh, verse 5, Hashem, Hashem is like a shadow. What does that mean, a shadow? That whatever, however we act, Hashem re- at, responds in kind. When we light the Hanukkah candles, Hashem lights His candles. Meaning that each, what is Hashem's candles? That's our soul. When we light the Hanukkah menorah, Hashem lights our soul. Lights, lights a, a special fire inside of us. And that's what the purpose of the Hanukkah candles are. They light up the Arhaganas. They light up the hidden fire within us. And Hanukkah can do this in a, de- in a degree that even Shabbos cannot. And it's very interesting. Explains Rav Moshe Wolfson that the weeks that Hanukkah fall in fall in on two parshias, on parshias Vayeshev and Miketz. Both of these parshias speak about the are the fire, the light of Mashiach. There's a story of Yosef and there's a story of Yehuda and Tamar. The, however, when you look at these stories, the the light of Mashiach is concealed with them. And that's the Arhagunas. Arhagunas literally is the hidden light. It's the hidden light of Mashiach and the hidden light of, of, you know, of the Arhagunas, of the, of the spiritual light. These are, are concealed lights. When Yosef at Tzaddik, he was the greatest of the, right, one of the greatest of the Shvatim. He had, there's two Mashiachs. There's Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. We're not going to get into all the details on that. If you want to look into all the details that I gave class, 21 classes on Mashiach, you could go look at that in Torah anytime. Well, the, the Yosef Atatik is Mashiach, has, is a descendant is going to be Mashiach ben Yosef. His own brothers didn't see that within him. The Shiftekah, they didn't see it. They didn't recognize his greatness. They thought that he deserves to be put to death because his greatness was hidden. The Mashiach within him was the Arhagunas. It was hidden. And Tamar also. Tamar was pregnant with parrots. Parrots, from parrots comes Mashiach, uh, the, 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 you know, the final Mashiach ben David. That's when the, that's where the final Mashiach comes. The R of Mashiach was also concealed within her. Yehuda had almost put her to death. The R of Mashiach and the R of the Haganas is always hidden. But it doesn't always stay hidden. When Yosef says, Ani Yosef, and he was, he was the viceroy, when he was the second to the king, and he goes to his brothers, Ani Yosef Haoda Vichai, all of a sudden, the brothers realize his greatness. All of a sudden, the brothers realize that everything he did until now was where it was leading him to, and he was indeed what he said he was. He was indeed great. When Tamar sent Yehuda the staff, Yehuda realized that she was righteous. The lights of Mashiach were revealed. These are the parashiyos that we read during these times, during these weeks, the weeks of, of Hanukkah, uh, the weeks of the parashiyos of Ayeshev and Mikes. These are the, the, the weeks that speak about Mashiach. These we're is in these parshas, Mashiach. It's, it's not. It's not in the open. It's hidden. It's hidden just like it's hidden in our generation. Their lights, however, were eventually revealed. And this is the purpose of Hanukkah. The purpose of Hanukkah is to reveal the light within each and every single one of us. Because when Hanukkah comes, we have to think about like, wait a minute, why don't I have that desire to learn? Why don't I have that desire to daven? Why don't I have a stronger desire to do good? Like, we, we, we could do, we start thinking we could have a lot of questions that we could ask ourselves. As long as we don't pass the blame. As long as we're a little bit honest and we say, wait a minute, what's missing with me? What's missing in my life? Maybe I could be a better spouse. Maybe I could be a better parent. Maybe I could be a better employee. Maybe I could be a better Jew. And if we ask that question, if we ask that question, we have a little, there's a little light inside each and every single one of us that has the power to light up. And that's the power of Hanukkah. That has a time to bring out the hidden qualities in each and every single one of us. It had the power during the times of, uh, you know, of, of, of Yosef and during the times of Yehuda and Tamar, when Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, the lights were eventually revealed. <clears throat> More for that in a second, but let's take it a little bit step further. The, there's something very unique about the candles of Hanukkah. We know that the Shekhinah never descends lower than 10 Tfachim. The Gemara in Sukkah, page 5a, tells us that the, the Shekhinah, 
on Har Sinai never went below ten Fachim. In the Aaron HaKodesh is also not what didn't go below ten Fachim. The Shechina in generally does not come below ten Fachim with one exception. And that is on Hanukkah. On Hanukkah it's preferable to put the nearest Hanukkah below ten Fachim. Why? Why is it if everything that we do is above ten Fachim, then Hanukkah we have to do something below ten Fachim? And the answer is because Hanukkah is different. Hanukkah Hashem comes down to even those people, even those souls that are not lit. Even those souls that have no connection to Shabbos. Even those souls that have no connection. This is the time that they have the ability to shine. And sometimes a Jew could feel so low. He feels he has no contact with the Shekhinah. He has, feels he has no contact with God. He has the ability to elevate himself or herself at, during these times, during this time of, the, of Hanukkah. Because you don't have to elevate yourself. Hashem comes down to you. Hashem comes down below Ten Fachim. And this is one of the reasons why everybody knows about Hanukkah. It's not because it coincides with a secular ha- It's because it has the ability to light a fire inside every single Jew. Not everybody capitalizes on it, but Hanukkah has the power to light up every single Jewish soul. It has that ability, even the most secular. And this is something very interesting. In Hanukkah, we always add a light. We go from one light, one, one candle, then we light two candles, then we light three candles, then four candles, and so on and so forth. We're always adding. And that is the goal of Hanukkah. You start off on Hanukkah on day one with who you are. And then you add a little bit. And you add a little bit, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes it on a whole nother level. And we keep on adding. And this, this, this light, this light is what the Greeks wanted to extinguish. They wanted to remove this. They wanted to remove the spirituality. They wanted to remove the spiritual thought process. They wanted to have a life, a free life, just fully secular. But there was one pach shemen. There was one jug of oil that they missed. This jug of oil is inside every single Jew. There is a light inside every single Jew that can never be extinguished. It can never be defiled. No matter what the Greeks attempt to do, no matter what Hamas attempts to do, no matter what the world attempts to do, there is a light, there is a fire inside every single Jew that can never be extinguished. And if we search inside our heart, we'll be able to see We'll be able to, to, to tap into that and all we need to do is add a little bit of fuel to that fire. And this is the power of Hanukkah. That we're able to light a fire where a fire was never been able to light before. <clears throat> the Gemara Makos, page 10b tells us, In a way that a person wants to go, that's the way that heaven is going to direct you. Meaning that if someone lead, wants to lead a life of sin, Heaven will lead you to that. Eventually you will succeed. I knew people, unfortunately, that they wanted, when they were younger, they wanted to do a lot of sins. But it was difficult for them. But they kept on trying, and eventually Hashem opened up the doors and they allowed them to succeed. But the same thing is on the flip side. That if somebody wants to do good, eventually, if you keep on trying, eventually Hashem will open up the door and will show you the path and will allow you to succeed in that. The Mida Tova of Hashem, the good, the, the Mida Tova of Hashem is 500 times greater than the Mida Peronius. Meaning that if a person is trying to do good, Hashem is gonna help you 500 more times than if he will help you sin. And this is what the Pasuk in Shir Hashir, Shir Hashir, the Medrash in Shir Hashir Rabbah, tells us that the Hashem says, Pischuli Pesach Kechute Shalmachat. Hashem says, opened for me a tiny, tiny hole, the size of a, of the hole of a needle. Just give me a little bit of spirituality. Just give me that little bit of spirituality. The size of the needle is so small. And what is the, what is the, how does the, the matters continue? Vani I am going to open that little hole that you're going to have. It will be so big that wagons and chariots can enter through it. Meaning that all we need to do is open up a little hole and HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to take it and expand it that, that it's going to... Chariots can enter it. Trucks can enter it. When a Klali saw, when the Jewish people wanted to do good with the menorah, we see this in, in Hanukkah story, they didn't need to find the Pach Shemen. They didn't need it. They could have lit with defile oil. They didn't need to go and search and find uh, oil that was that was sealed by the Kohen Gadol. They didn't need it. But they showed Hashem, Hashem, we want to do good. And they had a desire, they had a strong desire to do good. You know what happens? If you have a strong desire to do good, eventually Hashem will help you. And they had a strong desire to do good, and Hashem helped them and found them, gave them a a flask of oil that lasted for the full time that it needed to, to, to last, the eight nights. But the flip side goes also, that if someone slacks off, you lose the ability to accomplish. If someone 
you know, falls off the wagon, they are going to lose their ability to accomplish. But when someone tries their best and they keep on trying, they're going to see miracles beyond their expectations. That's what happened on Hanukkah. Hanukkah, we became lax in our, in our observe, uh, you know, the way that we observe the Torah and the mitzvahs. We became Hellenized. We became more like Greeks. We became more in the secular world. Unfortunately, something that we can say nowadays. We became more like the secular world. And we started, you know, we're still religious. We're still davening. We're still, but we're doing things out of habit. We're doing things not because we want, just we're doing it. So, we slacked off. So Hashem took it away from us. He says, oh, you're not interested. I'll take it away. But then, when we showed Hashem that no, we were willing to sacrifice for you, Hashem. We were willing to do everything just so that we were, oh, Hashem says, oh, you're coming back to me. Okay, you opened me a small hole. I'm going to take it the whole way. I'm going to make you a miracle that you're going to have the, the candles are going to lit for, for eight days. It's going to stay, the oil is going to stay lit for eight days. This is the power of Hanukkah. The power of Hanukkah is that we have the ability to accomplish so, so, so much. We have the ability, there's a, there's a spark inside each and every single one of us. And if we tap into that, we could be able to accomplish so much. But how do you tap into that? You have to have that desire to do good. You have to have that desire to do good. If you're putting the blame on somebody else, if you're passing the blame on somebody else, then you have no desire to change. One of the reasons that people pass the blame is because it's not my fault. And if you think it's not your fault, then why would I change? Asav, his name is come from Asui. Asui means he's complete. He's finished. He's, he's a complete product. A complete product doesn't need fixing. A complete product has no need for fixing. That's why Asav, it was never his fault. It was always somebody else's fault. It was Yitzhak's fault. It was his wife's fault. It had to be somebody else's fault. Someone like that will not see the light of Hanukkah. But somebody who goes and says, okay, you know what? Maybe I need to change something. Maybe I have to stop passing the blame to somebody else. Maybe I have to do something. Then you would have the ability to go and see miracles. And one of the ways that we have to be able to get to that is when Yaakov told Yosef Atzadik, he said, go check on your brothers. Go check on them. See how they're doing. They went to the, you know, they they went with the sheep. Go, Go check and bring back a report. So Yosef said, fine. He went out. And there was a man, the Pusik says a man found it, found him and he was wandering. The Kutzka Rabbi quotes the Medrash Tan Huma, which says that, who was this man? This man was none other than the Malach Gavriel, angel Gabriel. He was, you know, he, he was wandering in the field and Hashem sent an angel to go and give directions to Yaakov. And what was the, what was the directions? What, what was the story? Yaakov was wandering in the field. He meets a man. He's like, well, he, the, the, man, the man goes and asks him, Matavakish, what are you searching? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. That was the, the, the gist of the conversation. So what is the Medrash explaining over here? It says, this is not just something that happened to Yosef. This is something that happens to every single person. What does it mean that a man, that Yosef was wandering in the field? We each, we wander through our life. Many people are lost. They have no idea what to do with their life, right? We're, we're switching back and forth. We don't know whether it's with employment opportunity, with marriage, with children. We're constantly wandering. We're constantly lost. The angel told Yosef, says, you want to know what the secret is? Matavakish. What are you searching for? And the angel was telling Yosef, says, you want to know how to succeed in life? He says, you're going to, you're in for, for, you're in for a journey. Obviously, he didn't tell him this, but Yosef was in for a journey. Yosef was going to be on one of the greatest journeys, like, ever in history, personally, for his personal, uh, you know, a personal history, historical journey. He gets thrown into a pit by his own brothers. He gets taken down to Egypt. He gets sold into slavery. He gets falsely accused. He gets thrown in a dungeon. He then ends up becoming a viceroy in Egypt. I mean, this is a story, like, you know, it, it, the ups and downs, the extremes. The angel is telling Yosef, in your lifetime, you're going to reach the greatest heights, but you're also going to reach the greatest depths. You want to know how, what would be your key to success? Is you have to remember one thing, and that is matavakish. What are you searching for? If you know what you're looking for in life, if you have a goal, if you have a focus, then nothing can throw you off. Nothing. You could be from the highest to the lowest, but nothing will throw you off. If Yosef, if anybody had a chance to say it's not my fault, it was Yosef. He says, me, my fault? How is it my fault? He was, you know, like his mother passed away when he was young. His father sent him to his brothers when his brothers obviously didn't like him. His brother, his own brothers threw him into that pit. His own brothers sold him. Like, the, the amount of fingers that he could point <laughs> to who is the blame, it could be to everybody but himself, and he could be, and he's factually correct. But Yosef didn't do that. He didn't point any fingers. Why? Because he had one key focus. Matevakish. What is your focus in life? Yeah, pointing the blame to somebody else is not going to help your situation. Playing the blame game doesn't help you. 
So he says, am I going to start pointing my fingers at my brother? I thought that it's from God. Am I going to start pointing at, at, you know, the, my, my owner who threw me in the dungeon because I did something right? I was tempted by his, by his wife and I passed and then I still get punished. Like, it's not my fault. He could have said, not my fault. And Zelofel, this is not fear, every single day of his life almost for the first 30 years to a certain extent. But he didn't because he wasn't passing the blame. He wasn't playing the blame game. And that's what the angel was telling Yosef. He says, remember these two words. Ma tevakesh. If you hold on to that goal, nothing is going to throw you off. And I want to share with you something from our best friend. When Yaakov goes to, uh, we're all over by the way, with the Parshas, and, and like we're, we're uh, holidays and Parshas, we're all over. But anyways, important lessons. Ya- when Yaakov uh, met Esau, and you know what Yaakov tells Esau? In Lovan Garti, I lived with Lovan, and Rashi tells us, I kept the 613 commandments. Meaning, that Yaakov is telling, meets Esau. Esau wants to kill him. Doesn't have. And Yaakov, what's the introduction? Oh, by the way, I was living with Lavan, but I kept the 613 commandments. And the question that you have to ask, like, what? Why does Esau care? Like, are you kidding me? Like, if you want to go and impress somebody, then you have to talk to them by a language that they understand. If you want to impress somebody who is wealthy, Speak to them how much money you made. If you want to impress someone who's strong, speak to them how much how much weight you could lift. If you want to, you know, impress somebody who is a wicked person, you don't tell them. Oh, by the way, I kept all the mitzvahs. You tell them. Oh, you know, I was able to cheat and swindle and do X, Y, and Z. But Yaakov didn't do that. Yaakov was telling him. Oh, by the way, I kept the six hundred thirty commandments. Why does Esav care about that? Esav does not. That's not impressing Esav. Esav doesn't care about spirituality. It's not something that would impress him. So why did Yaakov do that? So explains the Darsh Mordechai, Rabbi Mordechai Druk. He explains that Yaakov had an agenda. And the agenda was that Esau, his mindset was, Yaakov doesn't deserve the blessing. Yaakov is a Russia. He's a wicked person. You know, Yaakov doesn't deserve the blessing any more than me. In fact, I deserve it more than him. Oh, but you could say, but Yaakov was sitting and learning nonstop in the base Medrash, for many, many years. So Esau will respond, yeah, what's the difference? But, you know, he was faking. He was faking. You know, I also asked my father, how do I give, uh, how do I give, uh, Meiser, how do I tie the salt? How do I give Meiser on, uh, on straw? I ask also questions that, you know, like I could also play the game. I could also fake. Meaning that Esau was thinking like himself. Meaning, I could pretend to be righteous, so Yaakov could pretend to be righteous. So what is the, the idea over here that Yaakov was trying to present to, uh, you know, to, to Asaph is that you could be a faker, but I'm not a faker. For you, it could be a facade, but for me, it's not a facade. This is who I am. This is who I lived with loving, and I still kept the Torah mitzvahs. And Rav Juk gives an example. He says that, uh, when he, he used to give, uh, a shear for a, about 30 years, he gave a, a shear in a certain area, a certain shul. And one day, he happened to be late running to the shear. And as he was running to the shear, to give the shear, there was a shamish of a nearby shul that calls him out, and they're looking for a 10th person from Mincha. And the rabbi says, I'm sorry, I give a shear over here for, you know, many, many years, and I'm already late, and I can't, there are people waiting for me, I can't stop and, and uh, you know, dab Mincha now. So the shamish responded, oh, what would you do for a buck? And the guy, the, the rub is, is responding. He says, what? What do you mean? He says, he says, oh yeah, you're making money in this year and that's why you're doing that. The shaman says, do me a favor. Don't take, don't make money and come help us with a minion. So the rabbi responded. He says, I never took a, do- I'm teaching here for 30 years. I never took a dime from them. And the rabbi went on to explain why did this shamish think that I was taking money? What made him even, like, I didn't tell him that. Where did he get that assumption? And the answer is because in his mind, he doesn't do anything unless he's getting money for it, unless he's getting something out from it. So if I wouldn't do it for money, that must be you also must not do it for money. Meaning the way that I see myself is the way that I see you. And there's a famous saying. The famous saying is what Peter says about Paul says more about Peter than it does about Paul. Meaning that when you talk about somebody else, it says more about you than it says about that other person. When this shamish, when this person from the shul was speaking, it said more about him than about the rabbi. And that was exactly what was going on with Yaakov and Esau. Yaakov was, 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 you know, was, came to an understanding that Esau thinks that he's a faker just like him. Why? Because Esau sees the world the way that Esau sees the world. Esau is a faker. That must be that everybody else is also a faker. So, if so, this is why Yaakov responded, I kept the 613 mitzvahs when I lived with Lavan. 
Because I was living with Lavan. I didn't need to. If I was fit, who, nobody was impressed by it. Not Lavan, not his neighbors. No, I gained nothing by it. But you want to know why I kept the 630 commandments? Because I'm not a faker. This is who I am. This is who I am. I am a religion. I kept the 613 commandments. Because that's who he was. That's who he represented. Now we go back to try to wrap everything together. And we'll close it off. So you want to know why the world is playing the blame game? Because deep down, that's how they feel. They pass the blame around just like themselves are never at fault for any issues. They're never at fault. So the Palestinians, Hamas, the terrorists, they're not that bad either because I'm never bad. And so it must be that somebody else, it, but they did the worst things. Okay, fine. I also do worst things, but I'm not bad because we play the blame game. We switch the blame game. The people that are passing the blame and saying they're really not bad because that's the way that they see themselves. Either they're bad and they don't want to be be perceived as bad so they say oh they're also not bad or they cannot come to the they, they cannot come to the realization and 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 accept blame upon themselves so this way for other people they also pass the blame no matter what you did it must not be your fault just like the world it's it, it, it's 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 a very simple concept the way it's sort of like the the reflection that we give out so it says more about us so the people when they present certain information says a lot about them and these are people, and we know the left liberal. They can't. They can't take blame. There's no accountability, unfortunately. And if there's no accountability, so then there's no accountability for other people as well. Oh, but you want to say that there's accountability for Israel? Okay, it's fine. Selective accountability, right? Because depending on what of them, one of them, who do I want to blame? And that's the way that the world works, unfortunately. But it's not just the world at large. All this point of me bringing all the current events is just to bring you the point from the macro level to the micro level. It happens to each and every single one of us. We all play the blame game. We all play the game that, oh, you want to know why I'm not this? I can't. If I was raised in the, in the house of the God of Adar, I would be different. If I was raised in a religious home, I would be different. If I was raised in a non-abuse, I would be different. And the answer might be, you might be correct in it, but you're not gaining anything by passing the blame to somebody else. You are where you are because that's where you're supposed to be. Now, the question is, how are you going to move on with that? If you pass the blame to somebody else, if you play the blame game, you will never move on. You'll be like Asaf. Asui, I'm done. I can't, it's not my fault. It's somebody else. You know, I like you, you want to be successful like Yosef. You have to realize I don't point any fingers. I look internally and I look at what I could do. What could I, what could I improve? <clears throat> and this is the power of Hanukkah. Because the power of Hanukkah, the reason why we pass the blame is because it's easier. It's difficult to change. It's difficult to do something. It's difficult to change who we are internally and, 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 and objectively. It's, it's so difficult for us to have that conversation with ourselves to say, what do I need to change? What do I need to improve? It's much easier to say, no, it's okay because, you know, like, I'm, this is my community. This is, everybody dresses like this. So it's not such a big problem. No, nobody goes and sits and learns, you know, at night. So I don't either need to sit and learn at night. We have so many ways that we could pass the blame. We have so many ways that we could point to somebody else and not point to ourselves. And the reason is, is because it's difficult. But the secret of Hanukkah is that even the most difficult, you have a hidden light inside of you that we have to tap into it and we have the power in Hanukkah. And the Hanukkah, you have the power to double down on it and you'll have the power to realize, to, to, to actualize whatever it is that you are passing anybody else that you thought that you could never succeed. Now is when you have the time to succeed. During Hanukkah, there is a fire inside each and every single one of us that if we open up just a little, little, tiny, tiny hole like a needle, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to open it up. He's going to blow it up. He's going to blow it up. But we have to realize, we have to have one goal and one focus. And that is, as the Malach told Yosef, Matavakesh, what are you looking for in life? What is your goal? We have to know that the reason, the purpose that we're put in this earth is not for physical pleasures. It's not for, you know, it's, it's, it's so that we could accomplish a lot in the spiritual aspect. And this is why even the most secular is attached to Hanukkah. They don't realize it, but deep down, there's a special fire specifically that's ignited in Hanukkah, because that's a time when Hanukkah, when, when you could light from, from Tenzvachim below. HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes down to even the most secular. No matter how far you have fallen, no matter how low you, you have the power on Hanukkah. 
So the bracha that I want to give each and every single one of us is to tap into this power of Hanukkah. And when we tap into this power of Hanukkah, we will uncover the light. And when we uncover the light within us, we can also uncover the light of Mashiach, which is also hidden. And the light of Mashiach, and with the light of Hanukkah, we'll be able to see the end of this gullus, the end of this war, and the geula b'mehira b'emenu. We will say kapitol uh, like we always do, and then we will um, open up to any questions. Kuf Lamed, chapter 130. Adonai <speaking in Hebrew> Nafshi la doni mishamim la biker, shamim la biker. Yachel Yisrael el adinai ki im adinai yachesed ve'arbei mifedus. Vehu yiftas Yisrael mikol abonisav. Achenu kol beis Yisrael hanesunim batzara uvashivya. Ha'imdim ben bayam uvein bayabasha. Hamakam yirachim alehem v'yetziem itzara leravacha umafela leayra umishibad legeula hashta bagala bezman kariv v'neimar amen. All right, looks like there's no questions. I'd like to thank everybody for joining. Until next time, have an amazing, successful, uplifting, and igniting Hanukkah. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.